Today's TribCast is presented by the Texas Farm Bureau. New to farming or ranching or just want more information about general land ownership in Texas? Visit texasfarmbureau.org for all that and more. And Canvas, a learning management system that Texas districts use to provide every student with equitable access to high-quality instruction. Learn more at canvaslms.com. Texas Talking what was that that you said? Texas talking. Ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are and Texas guys Hi, I'm Nick Johnston, Editor-in-Chief of Axios, and welcome to this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, live from Russia. Now here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Tuesday, June 19th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Fresh off of a very nice looking trip to Seattle. We have a college graduate in the family, finally. Congratulations. <laughs> Our breaking news reporter, Emma Platoff. Hi there. Hello. And Dallas Morning News investigative reporter, Dave McSwain. Hello. Hello, we're very happy to have you. And in just a few minutes, we'll have another special guest at the end, State Representative Tony Dale. Uh, We are, as always, taking your questions on Facebook and Twitter, so please send them our way. So uh, I want to start, of course, by talking about the single biggest story of the week, of the weekend, the last few weeks, and that's really been uh, the family separations on the border. Um, Emma, let's kick off with you. You've been following the the drama on this topic. What's the story around the Trump administration's zero-tolerance border crossing policy, and what is it meaning for children and families? So um, zero-tolerance policy is zero-tolerance for illegal border crossers. Crossing the border illegally has always been a federal misdemeanor crime, but for the most part, people weren't always prosecuted for that, especially if they were first-time crossers. What we're seeing now is that the Trump administration is calling for every single illegal illegal border crosser to be prosecuted. That means, of course, that if you're a parent being sent to a federal jail, you can't be with your children. That's why we see families split up. All right. And so how is this different from what was happening under the Obama administration? Because what you're seeing over and over again, you know, on social media and in the press are sort of questions around, well, didn't weren't we already doing this? Right. So parents, when they're sent to jail, are always separated from their children. You know, we see that in crimes all across the country that happened under the Obama administration. The difference is that far fewer parents were being prosecuted for this crime. It was mostly if border agents had a reason to suspect you were trying to traffic a child, if it wasn't clear that it really was your child. So it was just happening in far fewer cases. So like, how does this fit with people who are seeking asylum? Because it's not illegal to come to the United States and say, you know, I'm, I'm under threat in my home country. I need a safe place to be. Why, how, how and why are kids getting separated from their parents over that? So those are some of the most troubling reports we're seeing, um, which is that even asylum seekers are first going through the process of sort of dealing with this federal misdemeanor of illegal border entry, and then they uh, go through the, as- the asylum process. But of course, having this kind of charge on your record, and most people do seem to be pleading guilty to it, um, can affect your chances of, of receiving asylum here. It pivots on how you cross, right? And there, you know, if you come over the bridge, uh, that's, that's one way to cross and seek asylum, but they're apparently, in some cases at least, blocking them from crossing the bridge. And so they find another route, and that's the illegality. Is that, am I understanding that right? Is crossing between ports of entry, yeah. But there have been kind of mixed reports on how accessible it is exactly to cross at the sanctioned ports of entry. Right. I mean, what is, Dave, talk a little bit about, like, the sort of court of public opinion on this. I mean, you were talking a couple minutes ago about the audio recording that came out last night. I mean, what do you feel like people are feeling about this out in the world? (laughs) 
Yeah, I do think the last couple of days have been uh, pretty pivotal, uh, especially, you know, looking at Senator Ted Cruz last week having, you know, endorsed this practice and this policy and now today saying, you know, actually I'm against this, I'm going to introduce legislation. I think hearing the cries of children being separated from their parents is, you know, transcendent and something we can all, you know, feel guilty about. Yeah, really. agrees. Horrifying. I mean, the video or the audio that came out, I guess there was somebody who was inside a facility, a border patrol facility, and heard, you know, agents sort of joking about, oh, sorry, it's like an orchestra in here, you know, and you could, we need, all we need is a conductor, and you can hear these little kids crying for their parents. I mean, it's just like so jarring and awful. But we're seeing, you know, there, the conversation, we just posted a story looking at the reactions of basically every single member of Texas's congressional delegation. Right. I mean, where are you seeing elected officials coming down on this? Um, we, you know, Democrats are pretty angry, as you mm-hmm. might have expected. I think what's more surprising is almost close to universal condemnation from Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, House Speaker Joe Strauss, who's you know retiring next year, had a pretty strong letter to Donald Trump just this morning saying, you have the power to end this, and this is inhumane. You should end it. Um, as we've mentioned, Senator Ted Cruz has introduced a bill in, in Congress that he thinks would solve this problem. You know, I think a lot of this turned when uh, former First Lady Laura Bush weighed in with an editorial in the Washington Post and said, you know, we, you know, I live in a border state. Um, I am in favor of strong immigration laws, and this is immoral and inhumane. And, you know, I think a lot of people looked at that and followed her lead, and is, you know, the kind of idea of, even if you're conservative about these laws, isn't there a better way to do this? Is this really how we want to behave and how we want to be seen? And I think there's more legislation that's going to be proposed by Cornyn. He, t- he was tweeting about it this morning, but it sounds like there's more coming later today or later this week looking at this issue of, you know, if these folks really are seeking asylum, like, can't we speed up this whole process by putting right. more judges in place to, you know, adjudicate these cases, keep the families together while they're going through the process? But, I mean, so far the reality on the ground there is there are just not nearly enough judges to sort of process these cases, right, in any time, kind of timely fashion? Yeah, and that's what we see in the Cruz bill. He's asked to double the number of immigration uh, judges at the border to 750, I believe. He wants to speed up the asylum process to 14 days. Um, and he's also saying, you know, we can do both of these things. We can prosecute all illegal border entrants, and we can also keep them with their families. That's kind of what he's hoping to do with this legislation. Is there any way for the families to be reconnected with the reconnected? And, you know, are they... They have a good inventory of this kid goes with that parent so that six no. weeks from now <laughs> right. they reconnect them. You know, I mean, what's the... Yeah, again, we're, you know, it's mixed reports, and, and a lot of this is just anecdotal evidence that we're right. seeing. But when, once the families cross the border, they're separated, right? The kids are going to the Office of Refugee Resettlement Shelters. Parents are going to DHS shelters and often to detention facilities. These are separate federal agencies. It's not clear that there's a good, um, as you said, inventory sy- uh, system for reconnecting them later. Do we have any sense that this policy is working? I mean, if this is devised to be sort of like the ultimate deterrent, you know, do we know anything about whether families are changing their minds or whether, you know, the coyotes or smugglers are like informing folks that this is what awaits them on the other side? There's a lag in the border crossing data. I think it, it may take a couple months to see if there's a if there's a dip. Any kind of cause it, and effect. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know our reporter Julian Aguilar has been trying to sort of get into some of these shelters on the other side of the border to get a sense of this. I mean, I think you know, anecdotally, the concern is that you know the smugglers <laughs> make money off of bringing people across at right. illegal you know points of entry, and so do they have any incentive to be honest about the situation in the United States right now? Probably not. Is there, and I guess there's not a. I guess this is anecdotal. 
anecdotal as well. There's not a moment when you get the when you're trying to cross over illegally, say, with your children, where they say, you need to either turn around or we're going to arrest you and separate you from your children. It's like once you've stepped in, it's done. Mm -hmm. Well, I think yeah. that's what's maybe happening at these bridges. We're he hearing some anecdotal evidence, again, about people who are seeking asylum and the Border Patrol agents basically right. saying, FYI, you know, you take one more step further and you're going to be separated from your kid. You know, I mean, I think this is, it's just the stories we're hearing are totally crazy. How, how does this, if, if it stops, I mean, is this something that Trump and Sessions have to stop or is this something that a congressional act can stop? Congress could act to change it. Uh, I mean, this isn't a policy of the Trump administration. This isn't the result of any new law that Congress passed. But I think, you know, any kind of comprehensive immigration fix could certainly address this mm -hmm. if, if Congress chooses. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems to be in the execution here, right? This is, you know, you have the set of laws and the laws did not change in order for this to become a problem. And so you can back off and handle it in a different way. And that's in the hands of the administration. It's in the hands of the Justice Department and Homeland Security and all of those. Um, you know, it may help that, you know, it might make their job easier if Congress changed the law, but it's clear that we had a uh, less of a crisis situation um, without any change in law. They changed the policy. They've got a crisis now. Uh, if you change the policy back, you go back to that, uh, I mean, this is all in how you do it. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to be continuing to cover this issue. The Tribune is. Obviously, the Dallas Morning News also is. So pay close attention to your local media this week. Uh, just a reminder, if you're watching live, you can post your questions in the comments, and we'll do our best to get to them. Uh, and before we hit our next topic, I want to thank one other sponsor, Fibertown. All data centers are not created equal. Fibertown provides co-location, disaster recovery, and SCADA control for mission-critical companies. Read more at Fibertown.com. All right, I'm really excited to have Dave McSwain with us this week to talk about uh, just an incredibly remarkable year-long series. Congratulations on producing Pain and Profit. Um, you know, I think a lot of us who've covered healthcare have long sort of speculated that this move to Medicaid managed care, uh, which was meant to be sort of more efficient, more cost-effective, better orchestrated, probably had some kind of dark underbelly, and you have obviously exposed it. Uh, talk a little bit about, g give us the high notes of your series and what you have discovered about about this program and the contractors we've outsourced all of this to. Sure. Uh, well, I guess the high note really is you're seeing two different experiences with two different populations, with the, the healthy kids who are first rolled into uh, managed care and, you know, and healthier adults who, uh, you know, are on Medicaid, which, you know, today Medicaid is pretty much children, pregnant mothers, and the disabled. Uh, those folks who are healthy are getting the preventative you know, care that is promised by these companies, which will save the, the state money because they're not ending up in the ER. Right. But what we're really talking about are uh, folks who are already disabled. Uh, they're already sick. They're at, they're at home with uh, you know, ventilators to breathe, tracheostomy tubes, things like that. And that's really expensive in-home care that comes right out of the bottom line for these companies. And the state has really taken a hands-off approach and in some cases actually aided in, you know, essentially covering up problems in managed care. And these companies, uh, to save money, have started taking away those really vital services for a lot of these people. And we've seen some really bad outcomes for for uh, disabled children, foster children, and disabled adults. And some of the cases that you wrote about are just, I mean, absolutely stunning. Like, you know, a, a, 
a child who was making incredible progress but kept pulling out his trach tube and, you know, I believe it was Superior, you know, one of the big companies orchestrating his care, basically saying, you know what, he doesn't need as much around-the-clock nursing as, as the, his doctors and nurses are suggesting that he does. Clearly, like, a huge cost savings, um, you know, and a horrific tale of a woman who basically her only contact with the outside world, a paraplegic woman whose only contact with the outside world was the nursing care she was receiving, you know, and they cut it down to something like seven hours a day or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, clearly this is profit driven. What, what has been the response from state leaders when you expose that Texas has basically like washed its hands of this problem? Right. Uh, immediate concern from a couple House members, Representative Sarah Davis uh, and, and Richard Raymond, who, who chairs the House Human Services Committee, uh, as well as some others. The, the governor's office has really tried to stay away from this issue. Um, you know, in the middle of election, uh, there's no real political advantage to saying, you know what, this system that's run under my, uh, uh, under my control essentially isn't working. So we're not hearing much there, but uh, immediate concern from, from lawmakers who helped draft the legislation, including uh, you know, Senator Jane Nelson, who's mm-hmm. written a lot of the really important bills that have further privatized Medicaid and given more and more business to these companies who uh, you know, we found are often failing. Do you have any sense of how much of the, you know, they've made some big changes on the org chart at the Health and Human Services Commission, including the executive commissioner, but two or three layers down, mostly on the contracting end. And I know there have been other problems. Do you have any idea how much of that's connected to the managed care problems and how much of that's a separate thing that just happens to be coincidental because of contract problems? It's hard to tell. This is an agency that's in crisis. Uh, We were we were sending questions to the commission, I think by October, you know, we had 160 records requests. They were well aware that the story was coming and that it was not going to look good for them. Mm-hmm. And during that time, you know, they shut it down. The commissioner, uh, Charles Smith, who, who since uh, retired, you know, wouldn't do, wouldn't do a sit down interview. He retired just before the series was coming out. Good timing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there's no one to talk to, right? right. Uh, I, I think that I think that may have been a strategy. And now, you know, uh, folks can come in and rebuild. Some of the folks who denied that there was an issue do remain in power, uh, including uh, Enrique Marquez, who was a was a comms director. And I, had, you know, had approached the communications team and said, "Hey, I heard about a child. We, we later found it was Deshaun Morris. Pulled out his trach uh, as his." Uh, foster mother, nurses, doctors, everyone had warned he would do without a nurse and, and essentially suffocated to death. And, uh, I, you know, he told me there's nothing there. Don't worry about it. Uh, and, you know, he was later promoted just by having no Medicaid experience to right. to lead the entire apparatus, which is huge. You know, this is, um, if not the largest, one of the largest state agencies in the nation. Uh, and uh, I believe yesterday there's a new org chart that comes out. He's He's now a number two direct report to the executive commissioner. So it's hard to tell what's happening with the turnover. This agency is definitely in flux. Uh, There's definitely folks who have, um, you know, there's a lot of criticism that it's become increasingly political uh, rather than bringing in people with Medicaid and medical expertise to run the agency. uh, It is fascinating to have one of their responses be, you know, we can't answer your questions because there's been so much turnover here. We don't know who to direct the question to. Yeah, yeah, and I said, nice try. I'd like to talk to somebody. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I appreciate that. So. This this was outside of your reporting, and maybe in probably is a it's a left field question. But do you have any sense? You know, the Texas system for managed care, the incentives are based, you know, just the way the contracts are written on profit. If I mm-hmm. deliver 
services more cheaply or deliver fewer services, my profits go up. <clears throat> How have other states handled that? I mean, is there a way to do this where you get the advantages of managed care, but you uh, don't get these kinds of outcomes that Texas is getting that right. you reported on? And to tack onto that, is the, who's the watchdog here? I mean, do you right. just like wash your hands of it and say, fine, you contractor get to run everything and we have no oversight or no second guessing your right. decisions? Right. So uh, two tough questions there. So Texas's system is different in that they do this thing called an experience rebate. We give you all this money. We say, you know, please do a good job. Right. Show us some receipts. And if you make anything over 3%, we're going to start taking some of it back. And it's not all of it. It's, you know, it's 20% of anything over 3% we take back. And there's a sliding scale. And, you know, as our reporting showed, it's not hard for the companies to game that. And uh, it happens all the time. And the state doesn't dig any deeper. Right. Uh, other states have, uh, I believe Colorado and Minnesota, have relied more on nonprofits uh, and I, I think they've seen better outcomes with that. That right now Iowa is considering, you know, washing its hands and, and starting over uh, from the for-profit model. Obviously, if there wasn't money to be made, these companies wouldn't be involved. Texas was sort of at the forefront uh, for some of these companies, you know. Um, and a lot of Texas's former health officials have gone to work for these companies, right. which I thought was a fascinating revolving door aspect of this. Yeah. They know there's money to be made there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so there's a lot of money going around. And, and in terms of, you know, who, who's in charge, I mean, what we have is uh, the Health and Human Services Commission 10 years ago was pretty actively involved in delivering services to people right. in care. And now we've created, you know, under, it's really, you know, Governor Perry's, Legacy. Uh, most of this privatization happened under his uh, under his tenure. Now we have an agency that's, you know, it's been consolidated, but still really big. And their primary focus is to regulate these contractors. And they weren't ready. They don't have the experience for that. And often, you know, we find over and over and over again these contracts. The state's just getting bent over the barrel, and they can't. Uh, it, it, you know, they can't regulate them. So I, I think that contributes and, you know, uh, that's where you see the, the breakdowns in regulation. So what happens now? You've written this incredible multi-part series, you know, all the way through that's sort of putting pressure on the legislature. Are you expecting to see action? I know there's some hearings upcoming. How are you guys going to keep the pedal to the metal on this? Uh, well, we held on to some of our cards. Uh, <laughs> we have a few more things coming out, uh, uh, which I'm excited about, which I think are, are vitally important to the public interest and, and to our story. And we're, we're gonna have those come out uh, through the rest of the year and, and into the session as lawmakers are deciding what they wanna do about this mess. And uh, in the interim, you know, we have, we have these hearings coming up, a uh, little Deshaun Morris, who we mentioned, uh, you know, this invisible child in the foster care system. Uh, the state said, you know, there's nothing, nothing to see here. Uh, he and his mother are gonna be coming to these hearings and his mother will be testifying about what happened to their family uh, as Superior Health Plan refused to provide the services that his doctor said he needed. So I think that there's going to be, uh, there's going to be, lawmakers are going to try to figure out what, what the heck just happened and how do we fix it. And, and I'll be following that all the way through. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you for your excellent reporting on this. And thanks so much for joining us yep. today. Thanks so, for having me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
All right, well, just a reminder, if you're watching on social media, you can post your questions in the comments and we'll try to get to them. Uh, and in the meantime, we are going to do a quick swap out here. We need transition say, music or something. Yes, transition kind of music. We're going to say goodbye to Dave. Thank you so much. And we are going to welcome Representative Tony Dale on the TribCast, where he's going to get to talk to us about his November election matchup. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, a pleasure. So tell us a little bit about what we should anticipate from your November election. You know, your race has been called, I think by Ross even, a bellwether. <laughs> that it could go either Sorry. way. <laughs> Both Hillary Clinton and Greg Abbott <clears throat> have won there. What are you anticipating? Well, I think, you know, it's true Hillary Clinton won my district, but when you look at it, there were 11 Republicans that ran district-wide, uh, my district-wide, and the only Republican that lost was Donald Trump. And we had more straight party votes cast for Republicans and Democrats. So I think that's a good indicator. We just had municipal elections in Cedar Park, Leander, and Round Rock, Round Rock, <laughs> Round Rock mm -hmm. where... Republicans were running against Democrats uh, openly, and right. Republicans basically swept all of them very strongly. Were those, so, those were nonpartisan elections where everybody sort of picked up a label on the way, right? You sort of know who everybody is. Well, yeah. it, it used to be that way, but yeah. in 2017, the state Democrat Party came out with what they call Project Lift that is really trying to identify and recruit Democrats to run for these local offices mm -hmm. and really made it partisan in 2017. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, the Republicans said, okay, we'll respond in kind if that's the way you want it to be. That's the way it'll be. And the Republicans won strong victories in all was, those states, was, which are all mine, by yeah. the way. This is a sidebar to all of this, but I'm just curious about it. Were the voters aware of this one's a Republican and that one's a Democrat? Absolutely. It wasn't on the ballot, right? Uh, not you, on the ballot. You always know. But yeah. it was very clear. I mean, the Democrat Party endorsed the, you know, the Democrat candidates. Right. The Republican Party did the same to the Republican ones. And all the material and branding, it was all... Very clear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Question for you. You've said that your district, I, I pulled a quote from one of Ross's old columns, has, quote, always been on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of Republican voting strength. What do you think the sort of current anti-Trump sentiment will mean for your district? Well, I think when you look at uh, President Trump, where he was, uh, well, I mean, go all the way back to the primaries. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Ted Cruz won 27 of my 31 precincts. Donald Trump only won three. Right. <laughs> Rubio won a couple. So, uh, you know, it's he's never been real popular in my district. But uh, when you go back to where was he in November of 2016 versus where was he in January of 2017 versus right. now, I think things are changing. And um, uh, changing I don't, in what way? Well, I think more positive for the president. Uh, you know, the tax cuts are popular. And mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, where he was back in November is different from today. Now, where is he going to be in November of this year? I don't know. I can't tell you. It's, but It's uh, week to week. Yeah, yeah, it's week to week. But I, I, I don't think it's as, uh, as dire as Republicans would think it is, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Are you worried? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Emma. Oh, no. I, was, I was just going to say a lot of people say every Democrat this year, no matter where you are, you're running against Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you're running with Donald Trump? Is it possible for you to run without him? Well, I think one of the things, if you look back to 2016, when Trump was at the top, top of the ticket, he's not on the ticket now. Right. I was the number one vote getter in all 31 of my precincts. I beat Donald Trump by 6,225 votes. I beat Hillary Clinton by 4,300. <laughs> but who's counting? Just off the top of my head. head. <laughs> a little bit more than 4,300 right. on Hillary. But so for a state representative to get 10,000 more combined votes than the Dem or the presidential candidates is pretty strong. So I'm always out in my community. People can distinguish between me and other people on the ballot. Um, you know, we're close to Austin. People are involved in state government. They're involved in politics. Right. And that's when you, the news from Austin, it's all about government politics all the time. So I think people are pretty aware of who's who. What do you know about your opponent? 
Well, I know I beat him in 2014 by over 13 percent, <laughs> but again, who's counting? So <laughs> exactly 14. Is there anything new in the race this time? I mean, is it uh, basically just a straight or just rematch, rematch, or is yeah. there some changed circumstance other than? I mean, internally, not counting Trump and outside politicians and those kinds of things. I mean, it's not really a straight rematch. Um, you know, I've got a greater record of accomplishment now than I had in my second term. I think I've gained a reputation as a serious legislator and someone that can get bills passed yeah. that are, um, you know, broadly supported, not just in the legislature, by people outside of the legislature. And, um, you know, my opponents lived in the county longer now, which uh, was, he was new to the county previously. So I think that, you know, one of the factors. Is there something on the ticket this year or something in politics this year that you think is going to be the big influence? Two years ago, Donald Trump was the thing everybody was talking about, and everybody's performing better or worse somehow in relation to Donald Trump. But that was clearly the center ring of politics. What do you think the center ring of politics in this Texas general election is going to be? Well, I mean, I know locally a lot of the issues that I talk about have to do with the toll roads because I only have two highways in my district. They're both toll roads, and I'm trying to get non-tolled access roads there. Mm -hmm. So um, that's some of the stuff I talk about. But, you know, I've always tried to focus on things that I can control. I can't control right. what happens in the governor's race. I can't control what happens at the White House. I can't control the news cycle. And what's the big thing going to be? I really don't know right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just going to run my race. No T-Rex in the rearview mirror right. yet. Well, what about this immigration stuff? I mean, <laughs> your, you know, your press release um, announcing your re-election campaign talked about how important it is to you to secure the border. Mm -hmm. um, where do you come down on what's going on right now with the zero tolerance Trump administration policy? Right. Well, you know, I think this is a this is an example of what's happening now of what I've always considered to be kind of the immoral nature of our immigration policies. Mm -hmm. The immigrants that come to our country go through very dangerous circumstances where they are subject to um, physical violence, financial exploitation, kidnapping, paying bribes to corrupt officials, and women and children are sexually abused at a shockingly high rate. Mm -hmm. That is not good for anybody. It's not good for the immigrants. It's not good for this country. So no matter what, and of course, as you know, most of these issues are federal, uh, we have to have policies where the United States has a orderly and regulated method of deciding who comes here for how long and for what purpose. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have to have changes because um, these people are exploited at many different levels, and it's just not appropriate. So, but where do you come down on this current moment in time that, you know, do you think families should be kept together while they're going through this process? Or do you think the Trump administration's policy of, you know, separation as the ultimate deterrent should continue? Well, I've been around long enough to know that when we've had detention facilities in Texas that have put families in detention, mm -hmm. that the opponents didn't think that was good. Right. And apparently when you separate them, that's not good either. So is the answer just uh, come with a kid and you get a free pass? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's appropriate either. So my understanding is that these separations are generally shorter in nature. And uh, th I think the point was made earlier, if someone's arrested in the United States, they don't bring their kid to jail with them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I've seen kids in jail in Williamson County at the T. Don Hutto facility. And uh, that's different from what you're seeing now at these... Uh, facilities. I was surprised to hear Mary Gonzalez yesterday, State Representative Mary Gonzalez on NPR, describe the conditions. And it was uh, the thing that surprised me was not the conditions, but her description, mm -hmm. which was rather positive, I would say. You know, she didn't come out saying it was all doom and gloom. So, I mean, I think they're going to be careful about how they take care of children in custody. It's a big responsibility. Do you think they should stick with the zero tolerance policy or go back to what they were doing seven or eight weeks ago? Well, um, Look, this is something that the feds are going to have to decide, and I think you're probably going to see changes because I'm not sure how long the public's going to support something like this. Right. Mm -hmm. 
What else is on your top agenda? What do you want to make sure that voters in your district know? Well, I mean, really, we're, we're working hard to try and make sure that uh, not only can we get around, but we're not charged an arm and a leg. Like, you know, when I talk about having non-told access roads through Cedar Park, it really right. matters for my people in Leander, because if you live in Leander and you're coming down to work, which many are, you're going to pay over $2,500 a year for one car to drive the toll roads. Really? That's, there, the, that's wow. the road tax? There's no, wow. there's no reasonable bypass in this area where we have... Um, no access roads. And just by coincidence, I'm sure it's got the highest toll in Texas on a per mile basis and the sixth highest toll in the country. Coincidence? Yeah. Well, I our editor, so, Ian so. Mitra, lives in Cedar Park. So we're, we'll be having this right. conversation. Uh, next, he's going to be asking me for a raise so that he can get to work. Well, let me ask well, they one, pay a little bit less if they yeah. live in Cedar <laughs> Park, but one the editor's really getting hammered. So. One sort of broader question here, you know, with the Larry Gonzalez seat, he was a member of the legislature who resigned. That seat's open. Uh, the challenge to John Carter... Is Williamson County as reliably red as it has been historically, or is it changing some? I don't really think it's changing that much, frankly, because mm -hmm. when I look at my races from 2012, 2014, and 2016, I've won and lost all the same precincts every single time. Mm -hmm. My percentages have been very similar. And when you look at, you know, I don't have data for election day during the primary, but if you look at the early voting data, you can see that in the county where we've got about 365,000 registered voters, in the early voting portion, only about a thousand people voted who had never voted in an election before. And it was about 50-50 Republican versus Democrat. So even though we've got a high growth county and a lot of people moving there, you don't see a lot of the new people participating. Now why? I don't really know why. Um, is, it, is it people that just aren't registered, don't participate? I think it's a number of things. One is there's a lot of young families and everybody's busy chasing their kids around and going to school and setting up their house and all that kind of stuff. And, Maybe they just don't know who to vote for, so they don't participate. Right. That's one possible factor. But you don't see any kind of trend line that's threatening or encouraging necessarily? It's just kind of same old, same old? I think it's kind of same old, same old. And, you know, people talk about we do have a lot of Californians and people from New York that move into the district and Republicans that can make us a little nervous sometimes just thinking of those labels. <laughs> but I get around the community, and I think a lot of those people are, are really great people. And... Um, know where they came from and some of the policies that they left and don't want to see them repeated here. So I'm pretty good with the uh, California and New York people that are coming my way. Note, okay. Tony Dale likes Californians and New Yorkers. <laughs> well, my, yeah. my wife's from California, but, All right. but we're Texans. We'll start so. there. <laughs> yeah. One more quick hit for you before we wrap up. Congressman Mark Vesey spoke with Abby Livingston, our D.C. Bureau Chief, this week about what to watch for in this weekend's state Democratic Party convention. Take a listen. What are the three things we should watch for at the state convention this week? Uh, I think the overwhelming enthusiasm. I mean, people are excited now like they've never been before. Uh, I think the, the quality of our candidates that we have, I mean, it's hard to do better than Beto O'Rourke. Uh, we're competing in three different congressional districts, uh, possibly even more, but I know that there are three that are on people's you know radar screen. Uh, when I, for the first three, three cycles, while I've been a member of Congress, we've only competed in one. It's been the one that's gone back and forth between Democrats and Republicans, Congressional District uh, 23. And then I think just people just seeing just the sheer you know size of the uh, of the convention. I think the, this convention is going to be larger than than the ones that we've had in the past. Uh, and I think that that alone is going to bring uh, enthusiasm to people. I mean, it, it's really amazing just how different this year is for Texas Democrats more than any other cycle than, than I can remember. Uh, people are really excited about uh, the possibilities. Uh, people are seeing Beto O'Rourke, uh, you know, raise money, 
you know, like more than probably more than any other senatorial candidate in the country. If not, if if he's not number one, he's probably like number two or three or someplace like that, you know, nationwide. And for that to be happening for Democrats in Texas, it's just been so long. It's been a very long time coming, and people are excited about that. All right, well, that's all the time we have this week. If you like listening to the TribCast, we've got something else you'll love, an audio news brief that shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. You can learn more at trib.it slash thebriefpodcast. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to Canvas and the Texas Farm Bureau, our sponsors this week. Uh, On behalf of Ross, Emma, Dave, Representative Dale, Congressman Mark Vesey, and our producers Todd, Michael Ray, Bobby, and Abby Livingston, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. 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 As my daughter says, double X, Y, Z.